Hey everyone, Jonty here, just jumping in before we start this week's episode. Last week I spoke with my friends Wilson and Marty about Tim Burton's Batman, and Kevin Conroy came up in conversation, who of course recently passed away. That episode was recorded before his passing, so for those confused as to why we brought his name up so casually without mentioning his death, that's why. That's all, please enjoy the episode. Film Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating the ongoing mystery and dream that is cinema, and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is Jonty Cornford, and I'm a writer, editor, composer, music producer, and a lover of films. On this week's episode of the show, we're taking a trip into one of the most fascinating periods in Hollywood history. In the wake of both unimaginable trauma and the ending of what was probably one of the most exciting decades of cinema, we meet a troubled film auteur whose life was about to change for the worst, in a very public way, and not for the first time, either. It's a classic film noir that is notoriously dense in its plotting and mystery, and it's a film that has come to define much of what we think about when the phrase classic 70s filmmaking is conjured up in conversation. The history around the film is just as compelling as the film itself, which is really saying something when we're talking about a film as suspenseful and influential as the film that we're going to be talking about today. Join me on a journey into a time of transition for Hollywood, a time of great nihilism and bleak abandon, as we unpack the secrets and mysteries surrounding Roman Polanski's Chinatown. Los Angeles, 1937. There are lots of guys like J.J. Gittes. They're easy to find, if you want to find them. Mr. Gittes, have we ever met? Well, no. Never? Never. Since you agree with me that we've never met before, you must also agree with me that I've never hired you to do anything, certainly not spy on my husband. I don't get tough with anyone, Mr. Giddies. My lawyer does. You do your job. And sometimes you find the answers to questions that should never be asked. Or you find out what happens to people who ask them. Hold it there, kitty cat. You're a very nosy fellow, kitty cat, huh? You know what happens to a nosy fellow? I dislike the word cheat. Did you have affairs? Mr. Giddies. Did he know about it? Where were you when your husband died? You were seeing someone too. For very long? I don't see anyone for very long, Mr. Giddies. It's difficult for me. We're dealing with a disturbed woman who just lost her husband. I don't want her taking a bad job.
Quick recap, and a spoiler warning. Chinatown's ending is one of the most famous and upsetting twists in film noir, so if you haven't seen the film, and you do want to see it unspoiled, stop this podcast now, and go and check it out. It's currently streaming on Stan in Australia at the time of recording, and it's widely available on Blu-ray, so please do go and check it out. There's also a brilliant commentary track for the film available on YouTube with Chinatown screenwriter Robert Town and modern filmmaking great David Fincher. I do also need to warn you, this episode covers some pretty upsetting content, including themes of incest, pedophilia, and assault. If you've seen the film and are familiar with the history surrounding its director, you will no doubt have some idea of what I'm talking about. But if for whatever reason you do not, please know that there are sections of today's podcast that you might find upsetting. If you're coming along with me today, let's quickly recap the events of Chinatown. Jack Nicholson is Jake Giddies, a private investigator working in Los Angeles in the 1930s. A woman who claims to be Evelyn Mulray hires Giddies to investigate into her husband, Hollis, who she suspects is cheating on her. Hollis Mulray is chief engineer at the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, and Giddies hears him publicly refuse to build a new dam on safety grounds. Later, Giddies photographs Mulray in the company of a young woman and the pictures make their way into the next day's paper. The real Evelyn, played by Faye Dunaway, appears in Giddy's office and threatens to sue him. He goes to a reservoir to look for clues and meets his old police associate, Lieutenant Lou Escobar. The body of Hollis Mulray has been found, drowned in the reservoir. He begins work as Evelyn's employee, now investigating Hollis's death as homicide. He discovers that despite Los Angeles being caught in the middle of a drought, there are huge amounts of water being let off every night into the reservoir. He's confronted by two henchmen, one of whom slashes his nostril. Giddies learns that Mulray was once the business partner of Evelyn's wealthy father, Noah Cross, played by John Houston. Over lunch, Cross offers Giddies double what he's being offered by Evelyn to find the mistress that Hollis Mulray was supposedly seeing before his death. 
Giddies discovers that the land is being intentionally dried up to drive down the land prices, and that some of the land and properties have been bought by deceased people, as well as people using the names of unsuspecting members of the retirement home. His trip to the retirement home is cut short by the arrival of the thugs who slashed his nose. After escaping the thugs, Jack and Evelyn sleep together at her house. In the middle of the night, she receives a phone call and has to leave immediately, but won't tell Jack what the phone call was about. She tells him to stay home at her house until she comes back, and that her father, Noah Cross, is a dangerous man. Giddies ignores her request and follows Evelyn to a house, where he sees her comforting Hollis's mistress. He accuses Evelyn of holding this woman hostage, but she claims that it's actually her sister, Catherine. The next day, an anonymous phone call brings Giddies to the apartment of the actress who pretended to be Evelyn, finding her dead body. Lieutenant Escobar is also there, and tells him that Hollis had salt water in his lungs, meaning that he couldn't have died in the freshwater reservoir. Escobar suspects that Evelyn has murdered him, and tells Giddies to hand Evelyn over to him immediately. At the Mulray mansion though, Evelyn is gone, and servants are packing up the house. He discovers that the pond in the garden is salt water, and notices a pair of glasses in the pond. He confronts Evelyn about Catherine, who Evelyn now claims is her daughter. After Giddy slaps Evelyn, she breaks down and reveals that Catherine is indeed both her sister and her daughter. Her father, Noah Cross, sexually assaulted her when she was 15, and Catherine was born as a result. She also tells him that Hollis didn't wear glasses, so the pair of glasses in the pond couldn't have been his. Giddies arranges for Evelyn and Catherine to leave to Mexico, and tells them to meet him at her butler's home in Chinatown. He summons Cross to the Mulray home to settle their deal. Cross admits his intention to incorporate the Northwest Valley into the city of Los Angeles, then irrigate and develop it. Giddies confirms that the glasses he found are Cross's, and accuses Cross of murdering Mulray. The glasses are taken from Giddies at gunpoint, and Giddies is then forced to drive them into Chinatown, where Evelyn is waiting. The police are already there, and they detain Giddies. When Cross approaches Catherine, identifying himself as her grandfather, Evelyn shoots him in the arm and starts to drive away with Catherine. The police open fire, killing Evelyn by shooting her in the head. Cross clutches the hysterical Catherine and leads her away, while Escobar orders Giddies to be released. One of Giddies' associates leads him away from the scene, delivering one of the most famous closing lines in cinema history. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. I was far too young to understand Chinatown the first time that I saw it. 
In an effort to see as many important films as I could, I would scroll through IMDb's top 250 films list and make note of everything that looked interesting or accessible to me at the time. I believe that I was probably 16 when I saw Chinatown for the first time, and it sailed right over my head. The dense narrative and complicated twists and turns made it very difficult for me to follow, and on top of that, I was overwhelmed by how nihilistic and downbeat the ending of the film was. I knew almost nothing about the context surrounding the film, and the culture that this film was both speaking into and from at the time that it came out, and so on face value, I struggled to find a way into the film. That first experience watching the film couldn't be further from what I experienced revisiting the film again today. I think I've probably seen it about eight or nine times now, and each time I peel away another layer of the mystery, and each time I'm still even further sucked into the murky moral ambiguity and social malaise, the film bleeds thick still to this day. I had an experience of showing this film to a film club that I have the privilege of running, and the heated discussion that ensued for the next almost hour is testament to the power that this film still carries. It still has the ability to confront, aggravate and challenge audiences, and is a film that forces the audience to take part in decoding the moral compass, or lack thereof, not just of its characters, but the film itself, and, on a metatextual level, the very existence of the film itself as a piece of literature by someone with an uncomfortably close relationship with some of the film's subject matter. There are so many things that need to be untangled to fully understand this film and its impact, but to do so requires us to understand where this film comes from. Let us introduce ourselves to the highly problematic but equally as revered master of the form, Roman Polanski. Polanski was born in Paris in 1933 to Jewish parents before returning to his father's home country of Poland in 1937. They were living in Krakow when World War II began and were present for the German invasion of Poland, soon being forced to move to the Krakow ghetto with thousands of other Polish Jews. He was only able to attend primary school for a few weeks before all the Jewish children were expelled. He witnessed the deportation of Jews from Krakow into Nazi death camps, including his father. He details these experiences in his biography, where he writes, I had just been visiting my grandmother when I received a foretaste of things to come. At first, I didn't know what was happening. I simply saw people scattered in all directions. Then I realised why the street had emptied so quickly. Some women were being herded along it by German soldiers. Instead of running away like the rest, I felt compelled to watch. One older woman at the rear of the column couldn't keep up. A German officer kept prodding her back into line, but she fell down on all fours. Suddenly, a pistol appeared in the officer's hand. There was a loud bang, and blood came welling out of her back. I ran straight into the nearest building, squeezed into a smelly recess between some wooden stairs, and didn't come out for hours. I developed a strange habit, clenching my fists so hard that my palms became permanently calloused. I also woke up one morning to find that I had wet the bed. His father was transferred to the Mauthausen concentration camp, while his four-month pregnant mother was taken to Auschwitz, where she was killed in the gas chambers. Polanski escaped the Krakow ghetto in 1943 with the help of a number of Polish Roman Catholics, including a woman who had promised Polanski's father that she would look after him. He devoted himself to the task of learning how to behave outwardly as a Catholic, although never got rid of the feeling that he was still an unwanted outsider. 
He roamed the countryside that was now occupied by German soldiers, witnessing horror after horror. By the time the war finally ended, a fifth of the Polish population had been killed, most of which were civilians. Of all these deaths, three million were Polish Jews, over 90% of the country's Jewish population. According to some, it is his memory of his mother that he used as a visual template for designing and casting Faye Dunaway as Evelyn in Chinatown. After the war, Polanski reunited with his father and moved back to Krakow, where his father remarried. His father would eventually pass away from cancer in 1984. Polanski's fascination with films began as early as when he was four or five years old, and after the war, he would spend whatever pocket money he had to go and see films. As time went on, films became for Polanski more than just an exercise of escapism. He writes in his biography, Movies were becoming an absolute obsession with me. I was enthralled by everything connected with the cinema. Not just the movies themselves, but the aura that surrounded them. I loved the luminous rectangle of the screen, the sight of the beam slicing through the darkness from the projection booth, the miraculous synchronisation of sound and vision, even the dusty smell of the tip-up seats. More than anything else, though, I was fascinated by the actual mechanics of the process. He identifies in an interview conducted by Paul Cronin in 2005 the 1947 film Odd Man Out by Sir Carol Reed as being noteworthy in his major influences saying, I still consider it as one of the best movies I've ever seen, and a film which made me want to pursue this career more than anything else. I always dreamt of doing things of this sort or that style. To a certain extent, I must say that I somehow perpetrate the ideas of that movie in what I do. He attended film school in Poland before taking up acting in the 1950s, appearing in a handful of films, before also completing a number of short films, including Roa, Two Men in a Wardrobe, and When Angels Fall. He graduated from film school in 1959. In 1962, Polanski released his first feature film, Knife in the Water. It's notable in the history of Polish cinema as one of the first films to be released post-war and not deal with themes of war. Not only was it a major commercial success in Poland, but it built Polanski's reputation in world cinema as a filmmaker, including a nomination for Best Foreign Language Film at the 1963 Academy Awards. He then made three feature films in England, including the psychosexual horror thriller Repulsion, about a woman played by Catherine Deneuve who is repulsed by sex and descends into both depression and horrific visions of sexual assault and violence. While making The Fearless Vampire Killers in 1967, Polanski met Sharon Tate. They married in January of 1968 and moved to America. Paramount studio head Robert Evans, who we will be running into again shortly, said about Polanski and Tate, Just about the only really happy married couple I knew in Hollywood were Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. Tate's performance in 1967's cult classic, Valley of the Dolls, had launched her into the public eye as one of the great prospects for the future of American cinema, and her marriage to Polanski cemented her ties to the future of cinema. In many ways, Sharon Tate embodied the hope and optimism so present in popular cinema in the 1960s that was hoped to carry through into the 1970s, and the two of them were one of the most talked-about power couples in popular culture. In 1968, Roman Polanski released Rosemary's Baby. 
Robert Evans had brought Polanski over to America to direct Downhill Racer, but told Polanski that he really wanted him to read Ira Levin's horror novel, Rosemary's Baby, to see if a film could be made out of it. Polanski supposedly read the entire novel in one night, and the next morning had decided that he wanted to write the film as well as direct it. He then wrote a 272-page screenplay in just over three weeks. The film was a huge commercial success and cemented Polanski not only as a masterful filmmaker, but a worthwhile financial investment for studios to bank on. The world was at both his and his wife's fingertips, and both were poised to become two of the biggest names in American cinema. Tate was pregnant with his child, and the two had their whole lives ahead of them, but not for the first time in Polanski's life. Tragedy was just around the corner. On the 8th of August, 1969, Sharon Tate had lunch with actress Joanna Patet at her home, confiding in her the disappointment that she felt towards Polanski's delayed return from London, where he was working on the Day of the Dolphin. Later that day, she spoke to both Polanski and her younger sister Deborah on the phone. Polanski was caught up in London with script difficulties, and Los Angeles was in the middle of a heatwave, shortening Tate's patience towards having house guests. Polanski's friend, Wojciech Frakowski, and his girlfriend, Abigail Folger. She couldn't ask them to leave, because they were her friends too. That's it, Polanski told her. I'm coming. I'll finish the script over there. I'll leave tomorrow. But it didn't work out that way. Polanski still needed a US visa, and the consulate was closed on Saturdays. They spoke again that day. She told him that she and Wojciech and Abigail had found a kitten in the hills and were feeding it with an eyedropper, keeping it in the bathtub. I'm coming on Monday, Polanski said, whether I'm through with the script or not. That evening, she had dinner with Jay Sebring, Wojciech Frakowski and Abigail Folger at the El Coyote Cafe before the four of them returned to the Polanski-Tate home at about 10.30. That night... Polanski was discussing the script with his friends, Andy Braunsberg and Michael Brown. The phone rang. It was Polanski's agent, Bill Tennant. Shortly after midnight, Sharon Tate and her three house guests had been murdered by members of the Manson family cult. Sharon Tate was eight and a half months pregnant. For so many reasons, this is one of the most pivotal cultural moments in American cinema history. So much of what we know now as the overarching aesthetic and mood of American cinema in the 1970s comes from the reaction to this moment. A dramatic overnight shift from the wide-eyed technicolor optimism of the 1960s to the earthier, more restrained cinema of the 1970s. For the huge impact that these events had on cinema at large, it also cannot be understated how much this changed Polanski, not just in his filmmaking, but in his personal life too.
1969, screenwriter Robert Town was regarded by many as one of the most promising young screenwriters in Hollywood. He had written for Roger Corman and for a few television jobs, but his reputation had been made from a rewrite that he did on a script by Robert Benton and David Newman, for which he received the mysterious and tantalising credit of Special Consultant. That film was Bonnie and Clyde. Although the exact nature of his rewrites and the volume of his contribution to the script remained a mystery, his name shot to the top of everyone's list of screenwriters to work with in Hollywood. In 1969, he was working on the script for Shampoo with Warren Beatty and living with Julie Payne, a writer, actress and dancer that he had met out dancing with Warren Beatty, who had a blemish in one of her irises. Robert Town was in the middle of what he described as the good days, waking up at nine, riding until lunchtime, playing tennis at the Beverly Hills Hotel or just down the road at the Beverly Hills Tennis Club and then riding again until dinner, sometimes after. They were the days of love and good work, the days of dreams. It was, after all, Los Angeles in 1969. Robert Town and Julie Payne had dinner with Buck Henry the night after the murders. They were completely possessed by them, totally at a loss. The whole city was. Nobody knew what was happening, Payne said. We were terrified. Nothing like this had ever happened in Beverly Hills before. Payne had had dinner with Sharon Tate a number of times, and the police knew this, and so begun calling her about once a week as a part of their attempts to solve the case. But Payne had next to no trust in the police. In July earlier that year, a colleague of Julie's had been raped in Laurel Canyon, and she had reported the name of the rapist to the police, only for them to do nothing. Robert Town and Warren Beatty, Robert's buddy since Bonnie and Clyde, were completely shocked and did whatever they could to help their friend, Roman Polanski. Beatty threw Polanski a birthday party upstairs at the Aware Inn, and sat most of the night with Robert Town, Julie Payne, Polanski, Bill Tennant, and Tennant's wife. They drank heavily, and Bill Tennant, who had identified the bodies, sobbed throughout most of the night. Author Jeff Gwynn wrote, Before Sharon Tate's murder, Beverly Hills sporting goods stores sold only a few handguns a day. In the two days since her death, one store sold 200. Guard dogs were previously for sale for $200. Now, the price had jumped to $1,500. Overworked locksmiths couldn't keep up with demand. Reckless youths were staying home. Hitchhiking, once a secure means of transport and, in the context of the era, a gesture of peace and good faith, had ended abruptly. Murder wasn't new to Los Angeles but the apparent randomness of the killings halted the serene illusion of invulnerability. It was the ending, Robert Town would say. There were so many, but that was the end of the 60s. The door closed, the curtain dropped, and nothing and no one was ever the same. Polanski also reflected on the change Los Angeles went through in this time. It went from really bucolic suburbs with quiet streets and houses left virtually opened to an area of very dangerous living with people barricading themselves in. Vengeance in all aspects. Not only was crime on the streets, but drugs and envy on the inside. The cause and effect of Sharon's murder was to him the most dramatic change in the history of America, entwined as it was in Vietnam, its epidemic swirl of futility and rage. The hippie movement has degenerated, he reflected, but the degeneration came from the top, 
not from the bottom. When the kids began preaching new values, the government tried to beat their ideas out of them. Town and Beatty would continue to meet and work on shampoo, but the murder of Sharon Tate weighed heavily on the fabric of the film, and after briefly considering to set shampoo against the backdrop of the murders, Town decided to shelve shampoo. He discovered amongst a pile of magazines owned by Julie a photo essay, Raymond Chandler's LA. The collection of photos evoked the feelings he had about LA as a child and as an adult before his view of LA changed forever and he fell in love again with L.A. He began reading Raymond Chandler's mystery novels, drawn in by the way that they had preserved pre-war Los Angeles. Town said, In reading those words and seeing those pictures, I realised that I had in common with Chandler that I loved L.A. and missed the L.A. that I loved. It was gone, basically, but so much of it was left. The ruins of it, the residue, were left. At around this time, Julie Payne wanted a gun, and when Tony Silas, an undercover cop who owned a new litter of guard dogs and sold them a Commodore, saw that their house was at the top of a hill and at the end of a curled driveway, just like the Polanski and Tate's house at the top of CLO Drive, he agreed. Get her the gun, he told Town. If anyone came up this driveway, forget it. Women shoot to kill. Town got the message. Where do you work, he asked him. Right now, we're working in Chinatown, Silas said. What do you do in there? Nothing. What do you mean, nothing? Well, that's pretty much what we're told to do in Chinatown. Nothing. Because with the different tongs, the language and everything else, we can't tell if we're helping someone to commit a crime or if we're preventing one. So we just do nothing. So Robert Town went down to Kerr Sporting Goods in Wilshire and bought Julie Payne a thirty-eight police special, Blue Steel. She kept it in the closet shelf in their bedroom. In March of 1970, Robert Town was summoned to work with Jack Nicholson, who was directing a film that would later come out in 1971, called Drive, he said. Town worked with screenwriter Jeremy Lana, who needed help with the script, and did so for no money and for no credit. But he was a great friend of Jack Nicholson. The two frequented a Viennese pastry shop on the Sunset Strip called Puppies, where they would spin yarns with other like-minded Hollywood personalities. Harry Dean Stanton, Carol Eastman, and Bob Raffleson, just to name a few. But it was by watching Jack Nicholson, both in front of and behind the camera, that Town learnt and grew as a screenwriter and a practitioner of drama. They wrote and worked together for a number of years, and one night in the hotel room, after a day of working with Jeremy Lana on Drive, he said, Town said to Julie Payne that he wanted to write a film for Jack Nicholson. It would be a detective film set in Los Angeles in the 1930s, with Jack as the leading man, with Jane Fonda earmarked to be the blonde. When Payne asked him what it would be about, he had no idea. That was all he knew, but that was enough. Payne went to the library the next day and pulled a book off the shelf, Southern California, An Island on the Land, by Carrie McWilliams. She brought it back to town and he immersed himself in the history of Los Angeles, including the California Water Wars. He was continuing to write as best he could, but shampoo kept hitting red lights at every studio. 
His adaptation of the novel The Last Detail was, however, moving along. He decided that in the film, the sailors should swear like actual sailors. The draft that he turned into Columbia, Robert Town explained, had at least 40 motherfuckers in it, because it was actually an expression of their impotence. All one could do in the face of the injustice that they faced was swear. But Columbia wouldn't have it. In a letter disseminated to the principals, executive Peter Gruber presented the studio's demands in no uncertain terms. One, in the fight on the train, excise fucking asshole and you fucking move. Two, after the fight, Badooski says he's a fucking mess. Three, in front of the cafe, Badooski says, fuck the crowd, and Mule says, we'll fucking miss the train. And four, inside the bar, take out the third, motherfucker. This went on and on. In the light of the violence in Bonnie and Clyde, the drugs in Easy Rider, and the sex in Carnal Knowledge, what town described as the newfound freedom we had, it was flat-out regressive to stall a film in 1971 for profanity. The toppling of the production code, Hollywood's cobwebbed Bureau of Self-Censorship, had yielded an extraordinary wave of freer filmmaking that may have raised conservative eyebrows, but, as its strong box office indicated, was at long last luring Americans away from television sets and back into cinemas. For the first time since its conception, Hollywood was a young business again. But Columbia's David Beagleman, at 50, the oldest studio head in power, apparently hadn't got the message. He would ask town questions like, would 20 motherfuckers be more dramatic than 40 motherfuckers? He would answer, yes, David, but the swearing is not used for dramatic emphasis. It's used to underline the impotence of these men who will do nothing but swear, even though that they know they're doing something unjust by taking this poor neurotic kid to jail for eight years for stealing 40 bucks. It was a sort of Mexican standoff between Robert Town, backed by Jack Nicholson, and Columbia Pictures. But Town didn't have time for Mexican standoffs. He needed the money. To self-finance the writing of his Jack Nicholson detective film, he took on a job with Francis Ford Coppola, a friend from the Roger Corman days, when Coppola rang Town in a panic, saying that he was about to lose Marlon Brando from The Godfather because he still didn't like the scene late in the film where his character, Don Corleone, speaks to his son Michael like master and apprentice. Town dropped everything and worked with Coppola to fix the script issues. Coppola wanted Town to stay and continue working on The Godfather, but Town's mind was back home, where he wanted to be working on his detective film. On February 26, 1971, Town began toying with the idea of starting the film in Giddy's office, with a woman showing up. Giddy's was a name that he had landed on, in part due to a friend he and Jack Nicholson had, Harry Giddy's, and the name Jake came from the fact that Town had always called Jack Nicholson Jake. There would be draft after draft of story outlines, but nothing that Town felt was up to par with what he was setting out to achieve. He wanted this film to be a tightly wound and completely watertight mystery, and he quickly discovered that mystery plotting was a snake eating its tail. Does character move the story, or does story move the character? Town would learn to discover both simultaneously, allowing one to form the other, slowly, one inch at a time. He wrote at least 20 different story outlines, each new idea like discovering a new piece to a puzzle. Suddenly the puzzle would have to be disassembled completely and reassembled again and again. 
When getting to know Giddies on the page, he began to ponder the character's limits. Limits of agency, limits of justice. His mind wandered back to the conversation that he had had with Tony Silas, the man who had sourced the guard dog, and convinced him to buy his partner, Julie Payne, a gun. Tony Silas's limit was Chinatown. Town decided that Giddies would get lost in Chinatown. He wrote out that Giddies only has two rules, two limits. Look after your client and don't get tough. He then crossed out tough and wrote, lost in Chinatown. From there, the idea of Giddies confronting a conspiracy formed, and in conjunction with his research into the water wars of California in the early parts of the 20th century, the script began to take shape. On June 21st, he dreamed up a cast. Giddies was, of course, Jack Nicholson. Julian Cross would be George C. Scott. His older daughter, Anita Cross, would be Jane Fonda. He changed the name from Anita to Catherine. For her married name, he chose Mulray. There is also her daughter, called at that time Marion Wells. In regards to Julian Cross, initials JC, Town noted that he must be a Christ-like figure to hide the truth of Cross's evil. On June 28th, he noted, water must be a factor, either a dam or an aqueduct, getting water to an area and speculating on the land. Going by accounts of the real-life Owen Valley scandal, the land speculation forced drought. It was perverse, destroying their own land. And so Julian Cross would be perverse, twice. He rapes his land, and he rapes his child. This means that Marion is Catherine's sister and daughter, and she is protecting not only her own child, but her father's child. Writing Chinatown was a long, arduous process. He wrote like a novelist, turning out hundreds upon hundreds of pages of notes and outlines and snippets of dialogue. But a movie is two hours, in script form, about a minute a page. What could he cut out whilst leaving any good ideas that he might have had intact? And would anyone care? The film was a civics lesson on water rights and a story about the incestuous rape of a child. From one vantage point, the film could easily be interpreted as dull, and from another, obscene. Who would even make this movie when Columbia wouldn't even allow him 40 fucks? Robert Town had dinner with Robert Evans, the Paramount executive who handed Polanski Rosemary's baby. They had had dinner together before, when Evans heard about the punch-up he had done to the script for The Godfather, but at that time, Town had kept all details other than vague notions of mood and genre close to his chest when talking about Chinatown. Since that first dinner with Evans, Town had written off the idea of selling Chinatown to Paramount and losing all creative control moving forwards. He was even still holding on to the remote possibility that Chinatown would be his directorial debut. But Town needed the money, and Evans had restored the dying Paramount Studios from last place to first by investing in exciting young talents with films like Rosemary's Baby and The Godfather. And Evans wanted someone to write an adaptation of his favourite novel, The Great Gatsby. He had hired Truman Capote, but that script had came back awful. He needed to find his next writer for Gatsby, and Town just needed a job. The passion with which Evans spoke to Town at this lunch about not only Great Gatsby, but also his love of cinema and love stories, won Town over. And so, Town told Evans that he was also working on a love story, a screenplay called Chinatown. 
When he attempted to explain to Evans the concept for Chinatown, Evans just didn't get it. But he also had the huge success of The Godfather looming large over the conversation, with Town's contribution to that project not being forgotten. It wasn't Evans' place to offer a fee directly to a writer. He would have to go through Town's agent, Evart Ziegler. But he would be receiving a payday of about $175,000 to accept The Great Gatsby. Town declined, and Evans was mystified. He was still interested in Chinatown, though. It was, according to reports, a love story starring Jack Nicholson, and offered to call his agent the next morning to make an offer to option the unfinished script. Again, Town declined. But in June of 1972, running out of money, Town accepted the offer from Paramount. $25,000 won Paramount the right to purchase the finished script, should it ever meet studio approval, for $210,000. To Julie Payne, this simply illustrated Evans' scepticism. He never thought the town would finish the script. Charles Manson was apprehended, but Roman Polanski couldn't return to Los Angeles. Everything about the city reminded him of Sharon Tate. He stayed in Europe, based in Rome, in a villa big enough to host every guest, girl, or passer-through that he could imagine. He distanced himself from his past. His friend and collaborator, Kenneth Tynan, wrote, In order to survive and function, he has had to immunise himself against the nostalgia. He went to Gestart in the Swiss Alps, where he skied for four months every day. He invited friends and courted and slept with young women. Some, he confessed, were as young as 16, Switzerland's age of consent. He refused, whenever asked to account for his behaviour, to admonish himself for it, claiming instead all manner of justification, citing their, quote, untapped reserves of intelligence and imagination, how they weren't on the lookout for parts and other qualities not exclusive to 16-year-olds. Polanski wrote in his memoir, they were more beautiful in a natural, cultish way than they would be ever again. Polanski then went to England and made Macbeth, followed by the sex comedy What? In the wake of these two films, one of which was not only hyper-violent and overlong, but also was drawing laughs from the Playboy logo in the opening credits due to Hugh Hefner's producer role, the other of which was a sex comedy with a name that might as well have been a blank check to critics, he suddenly found himself in a position where Hollywood were keeping their distance. Hollywood execs were already keeping their distance in the wake of the murders, but his commercial value had begun to drop as the 1970s unfolded. In fact, Polanski still had no interest in returning to Hollywood. But a desperate Robert Evans called him, asking him to come back and direct a detective film that was in desperate need of a script punch-up. Despite Evans' persistence, Polanski declined. So Evans sent the script to Rome. By the time the script made its way to Polanski, he had a number of initial issues with the script. It was too long and had too many subplots. The auxiliary characters are all well developed, but there were too many of them, and they were drowning out giddies in the narrative. He thought that the civics surrounding the water scandal in the script was compelling, but were distracting from the incest story, what he said was the heart and soul of the script. At this point in the script story, Noah Cross was killed by Evelyn, something Polanski wasn't a fan of. Polanski asked, why doesn't Cross get away clean, just like most bad guys really do? 
He also had some objection to the way the water corruption was driving the narrative, saying that, in reality, the capitalist swindle with the water and the land of Los Angeles doesn't bother anyone. He was too tactful to say as much, but Town felt even then that Polanski's objection referred to a tragic past that was more real to him than the script. I don't mean this unkindly, he reflected, but I think it was impossible for Roman to come back to Los Angeles and not end his movie with an attractive blonde lady being murdered. Town took on Polanski's critique of the script, but also attempted to explain that he was after something more complicated than a simply desolate ending. Yes, Giddies would try and fail to stop Evelyn from killing her father, but he did succeed, Town would say, in getting her daughter out of the country, so the ending was bittersweet in that one person at least, the child, wasn't tainted. I felt this was too romantic, Polanski said, too much of a happy ending. Eventually, Town reluctantly agreed to a massive revision on the script, and Polanski returned to Rome. Polanski recalled at this point, We were really very critical to such a degree that Bob Town was getting quite depressed. Town regarded that version of the script to be the greatest thing that he had ever written. Polanski would come back to Los Angeles in the oppressive heat of the summer of 1973 and spend time with Town at a home Polanski rented from George Montgomery, who had played Philip Marlowe in the Brasher Doubloon, in the poolside office space, working on Chinatown. Town would bring his dog and smoke cigars, two things that Polanski resented, but endured for three days without any meaningful progress on the screenplay. Eventually, Polanski told Town not to bring back the dog, and they decided to start afresh on the script clearing the table of all preconceptions and building the story up again from scratch. They began by one-lining the script, writing single-sentence descriptions of foundational story points at the top of 8.5 by 11-inch pages and posting them in order on the back of the office door. This alone was an undertaking. Not only was the pursuit of narrative economy intellectually taxing, but condensing the story forced Town at every turn to sacrifice creative darlings that he had nurtured for years. Removing them from the script at this point would be removing parts of himself. But Polanski was firm in his belief that anything that wasn't related to the water corruption and didn't move the narrative forward should be cut. More than that, if it could be cut, it should be cut. One major thing that Polanski was also firm on was that the film should never leave Giddy's point of view, Whereas Town had constructed the script in a way that flipped perspectives constantly, giving us insight into a rapidly growing number of subplots, all of which would build and build into a whirlwind of paranoia and anxiety that would be overwhelming for Giddies. This choice in the final film to essentially be looking over Giddy's shoulder for the length of the film is the single biggest narrative restraint that helped to rein in this monster screenplay into something tight and compelling, as well as placing the film firmly into a timeline of films participating in the language of film noir. We will come back to this term, film noir, later on in the episode to have a look at what it means in more detail. Another major point of conflict surrounding this rewrite was the nature of the sexual relationship between Giddies and Evelyn. Polanski explained that he wanted Giddies and Evelyn to have satisfying sex because, quote, it changes the rapport between them for the second part of the picture. Something serious starts between them. But, Town countered, if she represents Chinatown, she can't satisfy Giddies. She's unknowable, impossible, a mystery. Instead, Town wrote a scene that brings them close. Quote, there's something black in the green part of your eye, Giddy says. Oh, that, it's a flaw in the iris. But the scene following, 
shows them after their clearly unfulfilling sexual encounter. Polanski's urge was to gratify Evelyn, Town pathologized. It helped him to argue his case. Quote, I think perhaps Polanski preferred identifying with the character when the woman praised him for making love well. But if they didn't have meaningful sex, Polanski returned, how could their relationship matter that much to Giddies and therefore the audience? Good sex, which portends love, would give Giddies more to lose, a line of reasoning that reinforced Polanski's vision of a darker ending. And here, Polanski used the same argument on Town that Town had levelled against Polanski's proposed rewrite of the sex scene. How Chinatown would Chinatown be if it ended, as Town had written it, with Evelyn killing her father and the daughter escaping? It would be Chinatown enough, Town maintained, to an end, pulling back into a wide shot of Los Angeles to show the legacy of the water scandal corrupting the city into the present day. Having spent three years on these questions, he was indeed the expert, and having failed many times over, he knew what did and didn't work. But Polanski, the newcomer, was an expert at audience, coolly objective to town's heated subjectivity. And each, armed with a mastery of story sense, could argue his case so compellingly that the glut of good sense led both writers astray. They worked for ten hours a day, Town said, quote, posting pages on the door of the room and kept moving around the little slips, figuring out one way or another that it would work. It got tense. Jack Nicholson swooped in for dinner and brought a TV into the office to lighten the mood, but it didn't work. Two months after Town and Polanski first began their revision, their arguments had reached unsustainable heights. They stopped speaking to each other. Robert Evans tried to referee, but the game was over. I would never work with Roman again, Town explained, nor he with me. Polanski had erased Town's elegy for Los Angeles. The very character of the city, lovingly rendered in place names and native personalities and detailed changes in light and ambience, had been raised for an unbeautiful, blackly anonymous setting, prostrated by menace and depravity. Town complained to Evans, but Evans, a producer with a picture to make, had to press forward. Resigned to the natural course of production, Town understood. There was nothing he could do. Chinatown was Roman Polanski's film now. Robert Town retained the sole writing credit for the final film, but the final shooting script for Chinatown was very much Polanski's restructured and slimmed-down take on Town's labyrinthine noir epic. So with that vital cultural and historical context put into place, we can now have a look at the film itself. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. I can't think of any line which so succinctly cuts to the core of its film. I can see how the line's place in pop culture may have diluted its power. Forget it, Marge! It's Chinatown! But within the narrative, it really is a perfect summation of everything Chinatown is building towards. Essentially, the line is all about acknowledging the evils of the world, as the film's villain, Noah Cross, gets away with all of his crimes. From hoarding Ellie's water supply while bleeding the city dry, driving farmers off their land so he can acquire it for himself, murdering those who stand in his way, and his rape and abuse of his daughter Evelyn. Not only does Cross continue to prosper from his crimes, but he also succeeds in taking back his inbred daughter Catherine, who will likely be subjected to the same horrors Evelyn was. As the film ends, the hero's efforts have completely failed, and evil has been allowed to endure. This is not how movies typically end. Most movies tell us that evil is an aberration. People tend to be morally good, Villains can be reasoned with, and when they can't be, then they can be destroyed. Even in movies where criminals ostensibly get away with their crimes, 
The character usually suffers some personal consequence for their sins. Chinatown is about facing a more horrific truth. Evil is everlasting, deeply embedded in society, and sometimes it wins. As we briefly mentioned before, Chinatown very specifically takes part in the language and vocabulary of classic film noir. This is apparent in the script, which we already know was heavily inspired by the writing of Raymond Chandler, but it is especially apparent in the visual dialect of the film. When we talk about classic film noir, a number of films immediately spring to mind. Double Indemnity and the work of film auteur Billy Wilder. Carol Reed's The Third Man, The Maltese Falcon, the directorial debut of John Huston, the actor who portrays Noah Cross in Chinatown, and films like Touch of Evil, The Killing, The Big Sleep, and Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. The immediate qualities of film noir are a deep pessimism and nihilism, black and white cinematography inspired by German expressionism, and a focus on hard-boiled crime fiction emerging from a post-depression United States. The popularity of these films in America in the 1940s and 50s can be likened to that of westerns, or even the popularity of superhero films in the 21st century. We see much of what we think of as classic noir being replicated and celebrated in Chinatown, namely a focus on a morally ambiguous male lead detective and a merciless brutality and nihilism at the heart of the narrative. In many ways, it serves as a precursor to what we might call neo-noir filmmaking, with films like David Lynch's Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive, and the Coen brothers' Fargo, Christopher Nolan's Memento, and even Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049, redefining and reinterpreting the language of film noir out of the 20th century and into the 21st. One visual motif that appears throughout the film that has ties all the way back to Robert Town in the late 1960s is the image of two identical items or objects, one intact, one broken. Just a few examples of this are the pocket watches, one of which Giddy's places under the tyre of the car, a pair of bifocals, one lens smashed, the two different Evelyns, one real and one false, Giddy smashing one of Evelyn's taillights, Giddy's losing a shoe in the reservoir, Giddy's nostril being slashed, and of course the blemish in one of Evelyn's irises, a detail that dates all the way back to Robert Town's partner Julie Payne and her blemished iris. This motif is then driven home in the gut-wrenching final sequence of the film, with the image of Evelyn's dead body, the eye with the blemished iris, blown out of her head by the deadly gunshot. What this means exactly is up for debate, as is any visual storytelling motif like this, but to me, serves a similar purpose to the iconic opening sequence of David Lynch's Blue Velvet, an interplay of light and dark, the contrast of the cheery and optimistic veneer and the seedy, nihilistic underbelly just under the surface. Whilst Chinatown's depiction of LA came out of Robert Town's desire to restore the city that he loved to its former glory after irreversible trauma, it nevertheless oozes with corruption and infection below the glamorous surface of social opulence and cultural decadence. It places the dreamlike city of LA that had been fetishized and glorified up against the reality of the brokenness, corruption and decay that defines the reality of what that city was in the 1930s, and had come to re-embody in the 1970s. Two identical objects, one perfect, one broken. In Chinatown, evil and corruption is elemental. It is in the air, in the sunshine, in the dust. And in the face of corruption so complete, there is nothing that just one man can do. A significant part of what makes Chinatown continue to stand out as exceptional to this day is the score, composed by Jerry Goldsmith. 
For me, it perfectly encapsulates what makes Chinatown so compelling for me. A conflict between romanticism and nihilism. The collision of the rose-tinted past and the bleak reality of the immediate future. The glamour and wonderment of Hollywood in the 1960s being confronted by uncaring and irreversible change. It's moody and melancholic, but at the same time, retains a sense of defiant optimism, the sort of defiant optimism that Giddies needs to possess to continue wading through such systemic corruption and evil. Initially, film composer Philip Lambro was hired to compose the score for Chinatown, but Robert Evans sacked Lambro at the last minute, throwing out all the music that he had written and giving Goldsmith just 10 days to complete his score. To me, it feels very similar to some of the score in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, a film that would come out two years after Chinatown, in how closely tied it remains to the romanticism of classic Hollywood. But what elevates the score from good to classic for me is the way that it balances between the romanticism and nihilism of the film, swinging back and forth across the gray spaces, occasionally dipping fully into the aesthetic and historic fingerprints of either side of that dichotomy. When the film requires it, the score takes on a menacing tone that wouldn't feel out of place in something like Polanski's Rosemary's Baby or any other horror film of the 1970s. While I think that 1973's The Exorcist is already a perfect film, it would be fascinating to see how effective some of these moments of the score in Chinatown would be at building tension in a film like The Exorcist. It's unsettling and moves with a menacing rhythm, underlying even earlier scenes that are not immediately apparent in their ties to corruption and decay with a real sense of dread. We've spoken about Jack Nicholson's acting before on this show, with his performances in The Shining and Batman, and as I mentioned in the episode on The Shining, this is one of the roles that cemented him as one of the most iconic and celebrated screen actors in the history of cinema. Much like Jack Torrance in The Shining, Jake Giddies isn't so much a compelling and exciting character on his own as he is a vehicle for Jack Nicholson to be electric on screen. That is, of course, by design, with the role being one that was written for him from the very beginning. And this isn't a bad thing, either. Often, an actor's inability to disappear into a character only serves to alienate the viewer from the screen, but in the case of Jack Nicholson, he is such a charismatic presence on screen that it only compels the audience further into the narrative. When Nicholson is on screen, no matter what film he is in, the screen resonates. In keeping with the film's roots in film noir, he is present for the entirety of the film, and it's a credit to Nicholson's power as an actor that his presence on screen never once begins to tire or outstay its welcome. 
It's no secret that Polanski's relationship with women has been beyond questionable, something we'll unpack in the final section of this episode. And Faye Dunaway's performance as Evelyn in the film provides ample opportunity for viewers of Chinatown to read into this dimension of Polanski's filmmaking. We mentioned earlier the conflict that Polanski and Robert Town had over the exact nature of Evelyn's role in the film and her relationship to Nicholson's character. This largely focused on the lovemaking scene in the film, where Giddies ends up at Evelyn's place and the two of them sleep together, and the effect that this event has on both of them. That in itself provides a number of different readings. I, for one, feel like Evelyn's place in the film and role in the power dynamics at play in the narrative is irreversibly changed by the fact that she seems to get great satisfaction out of sleeping with Giddies. Sexuality is at the heart of the conflict inherent not only in her own character, but the conflict driving the film, and one criticism I do have with the film is how it handles this. And yes, that has a lot to do with Polanski's attitude towards sex, but it does also have a lot to do with the archetypal female characters that dominated cinema in this era of filmmaking. Take one example not just as a parallel film in terms of content and style, but as a very clear influence on Chinatown. Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. When the relationship between Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak's characters takes on the sexual dimension, it is very clearly depicted as disturbing in terms of the coercion from Jimmy Stewart. The character Kim Novak is playing at this point in the film is by no means devoid of flaws or moral shortcomings, but the role of possessor and controller is very much that of Jimmy Stewart, who is using Kim Novak as a means to attaining an end born out of personal tragedy and a twisted sense of devotion, motivation and moral duty. While Vertigo and Alfred Hitchcock are not totally off the hook with the moral and ethical implications of this on-screen relationship, where it separates itself from Chinatown is in the way that it is impossible to watch Vertigo and feel like you are on Jimmy Stewart's side when it comes to that relationship. That is part of the power and resonance of Vertigo. It is asking you to empathise with and understand Jimmy Stewart, despite the fact that we know he is manipulating and gaslighting a woman into the idealised version of someone he knows that he can never actually have. Chinatown, however, I think is too closely tied to its troubled creative to be that critical and objective about its male lead. The scene in which Evelyn and Giddies end up sleeping together doesn't treat that moment with the moral and emotional complexity that some would say it needs. But really, can we expect someone like Roman Polanski to be that critical and self-aware about toxic and problematic male tendencies towards sexuality and female leads in film? Despite this, I do think that Faye Dunaway's performance is on par with that of someone like Kim Novak in Vertigo. She's enigmatic and powerful in her collision with Giddies, but also shows the required vulnerability and weakness to sell her character as the central emotional mystery box of the film. Given her performances in particular for this film and Sidney Lumet's network, Dunaway strikes me as one of the more underrated screen actors of that generation. Before we dive back into the cultural and contextual background of the film that would unfold in the years afterwards, we do need to talk about the ending of the film. I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that I showed this film to a film club that I have the pleasure of running and that it sparked heated debate that lasted for more than an hour. There is no doubt that Chinatown's twist ending is upsetting, and the fact that we see the film now with the retrospective knowledge of the person that Roman Polanski turned out to be certainly doesn't dull the impact of this moment. Having thought about this film a lot, I actually think that we can make a coherent and worthwhile comparison between it and a film that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, David Lynch's Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Both films centre around incest and sexual assault as a plot point, 
and both take the subject matter very seriously, but the response that these two pictures elicit out of the audience are drastically different. On the one hand, Chinatown seems to evoke outrage and a rejection of the film in some cases, whereas Fire Walk With Me leaves the audience deflated, devastated, and emotionally drained. What are these two movies doing differently? If I were to attempt to put my finger on exactly what these two films are doing differently in approaching such sensitive subject matter, I would start with the concept of perspective. In Chinatown, the incest driving the conflict of the narrative is only revealed at the end of the film, because that is when Jack Nicholson discovers it. As a piece of film noir, the film is deliberately constructed to be entirely from Giddy's point of view, revealing clues and information to the audience at the same pace that Giddy's uncovers them. We can tell that there is something that Evelyn isn't revealing to Giddy's and therefore us as the audience, and so while it is no surprise that she is not entirely who she was leading Giddy's to believe she was, the gravity and pain of her situation seemingly comes out of nowhere. Credit where it's due though, because when you rewatch the film, the clues for this revelation are littered throughout the film, and her character takes on a tragic stoicism that isn't immediately present upon a first watch. In the case of Fire Walk With Me, however, it's a film about trauma, and the incest at the dark heart of the film is a part of the central character's conflict. We are asked to experience the horror of abuse from the perspective of the victim, an exercise in empathy. Lynch has been approached and spoken to by victims of abuse and assault, who explain to him that Twin Peaks in particular captures their trauma and abuse, and the experience of what it is like to live with that trauma, following you around, better and more empathetically than anything else that they had experienced, in a way that allowed them catharsis and healing. I don't think that it would be a stretch to assume that there is no way Roman Polanski had anything like that on his mind when constructing the ending of Chinatown with Robert Town. Perhaps the happier ending Town had envisioned would have softened the blow of this, but evidently Polanski's sole concern was the effect that this relationship would have on the central detective. It is a plot point designed to interface with the male lead, with little concern for the effects that the abuse has on the female characters, the ones who endure it and deal with its immediate effects on their lives. Where Fire Walk With Me is about the effects of abuse and lasting impact of trauma, Chinatown seems to be more interested in depicting it as a point of growth and conflict for the male protagonist. Which makes a whole lot of sense when you know a little bit about who Roman Polanski is. We will come back to him and his story shortly, but first, let's look at how Chinatown was received. The film was a small financial success, making a tick over $23 million from its $6 million budget. It was widely a critical success, with Polanski being lauded for his return to Hollywood filmmaking and Town's script receiving high praise, including the Best Original Screenplay Award at the 1975 Academy Awards. Vincent Canby for the New York Times wasn't as impressed, however, given its relationship to the roots of film noir, writing that Mr. Polanski and Mr. Town have attempted nothing so witty and entertaining, being content instead to make a competently stylish, more or less 30s-ish movie that continues to make me wish I were back seeing The Maltese Falcon or The Big Sleep. Today, it's widely regarded as a classic of the genre, comfortably sitting not just as an homage to classic film noir, but alongside those films as an essential work in the genre. There has been much written about the years immediately after Chinatown in Roman Polanski's life, as well as countless true crime podcasts, so I suggest that you check those out if you want to go into the details and minutia of these events. But to cut a long story short, in 1977, Polanski was arrested and charged with drugging and raping a 13-year-old girl during a photo shoot 
at Jack Nicholson's house. In 1978, he fled the United States and now lives in Europe, still a fugitive from the American criminal justice system. He has continued to make films to this day, in between dodging and navigating the law across various different countries and territories, and in 2009, more than 100 people in the film industry signed a petition of support for Polanski, including David Lynch, Woody Allen, Martin Scorsese, Darren Aronofsky, and Emma Thompson, who later asked for her name to be removed from the petition. Unsurprisingly, film producer and convicted sex offender Harvey Weinstein was an outspoken supporter of Polanski during his time in the film industry. The history and legality of Polanski's ongoing dance with criminal justice systems around the world is a fascinating one to explore, but for me, when it comes to Chinatown, it paints the film in a very different light and forces me to consider just where I draw the line separating art and artist. Chinatown is inarguably a masterpiece of filmmaking and screenwriting, and is a cultural touchstone for the 1970s, both inside of and removed from the text itself. But its creator does have an uncomfortably close relationship to its more upsetting subject matter, so how do you reconcile that? Are you supporting a person like Polanski or endorsing him as an artist by watching his films? Can you engage in the history of cinema whilst avoiding or boycotting problematic figures that pop up along its timeline? I received a number of correspondences after the first episode of the show on The Shining about my use of a clip of Louis C.K. talking about Kubrick and whether I endorse him as a person. The answer to that question is complicated, especially when we talk about Louis C.K., but the short answer is that his contribution to the conversation surrounding The Shining and Kubrick was valuable, something that has nothing to do with who he is as a person or any wrongdoing he may or may not have done in the past. At this point in my life, this is how I feel, whilst treading gently in spaces that are sensitive, and rightly so. I think we can be comfortable in celebrating great pieces of art without necessarily endorsing or celebrating the person responsible for it. In the case of Chinatown, I am comfortable calling the film a masterpiece, but the reality is that you have to understand who Roman Polanski is in order to fully appreciate it in its cultural and historical context, something that requires you to encounter things external to the piece that are uncomfortable, confronting, and upsetting. It's something that we do unfortunately have to reconcile if we want to engage in any art form, not just cinema, because art is made by human beings, a notoriously awful and morally bankrupt race of beings. Do hear me though when I say that if you disagree and view any endorsement of a Polanski film as an endorsement of Polanski himself, then that is totally valid. It's a space made up entirely of greys, and a space that has the capacity to be incredibly inflammatory and triggering for people, so I encourage listeners to tread gently and carefully in these spaces with the intent of sharing it with people with all different opinions. If there is one silver lining in navigating these spaces of morality and accountability in art, it is that at the end of the day, there are still great films that we can watch together, talk about together, and disagree about together. As is so often the case, there's another interesting film that also came out in 1974 that mirrors much of what Chinatown aims to achieve. The Parallax View by Alan J. Pakula, starring Polanski's buddy Warren Beatty. It makes for a compelling double bill with Chinatown, if also a fairly nihilistic and downbeat one. It's impossible to look at the year of 1974 and not highlight Francis Ford Coppola and his one-two punch of The Conversation and The Godfather Part 2, a film that I think expands and improves on The Godfather in every way. 
Horror cinema has the bar raised for unrelenting terror in the form of the sunburnt and sweaty nightmare that is Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a film that holds up to this day as genuinely upsetting and terrifying in a way that none of its sequels and remakes have lived up to in the years since. Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles opens to the world, and the world premiere of the film takes place at the Pickwick Drive-In Theatre in Burbank, California, where 200 guests watch the film on horseback. Some other favourites of mine from this year are John Cassavetti's A Woman Under the Influence, Scorsese's collaboration with Ellen Bernstein with Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Scenes from a Marriage from Bergman, Pam Greer's exploitation classic Foxy Brown, Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein starring Gene Wilder, and John Waters' Female Trouble. 1974 is the year that Technicolor ceased its legendary dye transferring process, and MGM celebrated its 50th anniversary with a retrospective documentary called That's Entertainment, a celebration of MGM's prestigious musicals. In October, November and December of 1974, three disaster films were released in consecutive months, all of which were huge commercial successes. Airport 1975, Earthquake and The Towering Inferno. Kevin Costa makes his debut in Sizzle Beach, USA, also known in some territories as Malibu Hot Summer, although the film would not be released all the way until 1986. At the 1975 Academy Awards, there were no great surprises, with The Godfather Part II nominated for nine Oscars and winning six. Best Supporting Actor for Robert De Niro, Best Original Score, Art Direction, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture. Chinatown would win Best Original Screenplay. At the worldwide box office, the five top-grossing films of the year were Airport 1975, Earthquake, Young Frankenstein, The Towering Inferno, and at the top, Blazing Saddles. Thanks for listening to the Blue Rose Film Podcast. Major sources for this episode include Sam Wesson's amazing book, The Big Goodbye, Chinatown and the Last Years of Hollywood, and the Blu-ray commentary track by Robert Town and David Fincher. There'll be links to these sources down below in the show notes. You can support this podcast by leaving a review or a like, or even better, you could just share it with a friend. You can get in touch by emailing us at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com, or you can just find us on socials and get in touch there. For those of you who don't already follow Blue Rose on Instagram, it's a great way to connect with me and a bunch of other people who just love talking about movies. The handle is bluerose.filmreview. I hope to see you over there. Don't forget to check out the blog where you can read more pieces by myself about great films and continue the conversation. That's all for now, and I'll see you next week. But until then, remember, if you go home with someone and they have a poster of Tyler Durden on their wall, they don't get it, and they're definitely not worth it. Take care.